really understand and grasp the significance of Christmas without looking at it against the backdrop of Easter. And so it's just the whole picture of what Jesus came to do. So we are uh, been in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and 7 for the last several weeks. We're going to finish that up. And so if you'll turn to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. And so Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And these were titles that were given to Jesus that displayed what it is that he came to do. And we included on Thursday night the name or the title of Emmanuel, God with us. So today we want to talk about peace. What is this peace? Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Um, John chapter 14 and verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. There are two things that strike me in that verse. Number one, peace, he says, is a gift. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. So I'm receiving that peace as a gift from Christ. And you'll notice the second thing about that verse is that he doesn't give you the kind of peace that the world gives. Because the world is limited on what kind of peace they can offer you. Because you can't have true, authentic peace, at least not God's peace, apart from the Prince of Peace. And so Jesus says it's a gift and it's different. I mean, if I were to ask people to describe the word peace, what does that mean to you? Well, depending on who you're asking, you get a wide variety of answers. For example, if I went into a war-torn country like Iraq or Afghanistan, Lebanon, where there's wars going on all the time... And I asked them, what is peace? Well, peace is obviously the cessation of war. It's soldiers being sent home. It's tanks being you know, put in a, a garage somewhere. And the, you know, the ships are pulled off the oceans. It's all about world peace. And this is something that people long for, right? Everybody longs for world peace. We want to have peace around the world. In the last 3,500 years um, of world history, only 286 years comprise of those years that had no war going on somewhere around the world. Or if you ask somebody else, they might say, well, peace is that um, inner sense of calm, it's tranquility, it's, it's quietness, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just contentment and well-being. And when, you know, when everything is going my way and life is kind of smoothed out, I have this sense of peace. And so that peace, though, is based on what? Circumstances. As long as my circumstances are going really well and life is really going the way I want it to, which how often does that happen? And even when it does, it doesn't last. Now, all of a sudden, my peace is gone. And so they're constantly chasing after a feeling that will bring some kind of peace where you are at war within yourself. It might be over a past hurt. It might be over a past trauma in your life, and that is, going, that is at war within you, and you're wanting peace in the midst of that, but you're not sure how to find it. And so when people are just chasing a feeling, you can find a feeling in a pill. You can find a feeling in alcohol, drugs, a, a thousand different ways to try to find this peace, this elusive peace that people are looking for. And for some people, peace is just... Um, the product of doing the right things and saying the right things and getting the right job. P 
Peace is the prevailing theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament alone, it's mentioned over 200 times, 100 times in the New Testament. So what is this peace that Jesus says, my peace I give to you? Not as the world gives, but I give you my peace. What is this gift? Well, it is, it is from the Hebrew word shalom, which means um, to be bound, to bind something. Uh, oneness, wholeness, um, inner stability. In other words, no matter what my circumstances are around me, I can still have inner stability within me because I am, I am walking in the gift of God's peace. And this is the peace that he's talking about. And what Jesus is saying, in essence, is this is, this is not peace that comes and goes and ebbs and flows. The peace that Jesus wants to give us, that's the, peace that, that's the only way peace the world can give us, something that ebbs and flows with our circumstances. Jesus says, no matter what's happening in your life, what the circumstances, you can have prevailing peace because, watch, it's the peace that he is promising is the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and are dwelt by the Holy Spirit, that means that that peace can prevail no matter what is going on in your life or around your life if you yield yourself to the Spirit of God. So prevailing peace survives even the most difficult trials. It is the sense of steadfastness and inner quietness even when the storms are, are raging, because you have anchored into something that is immovable, which is God's kingdom. Many, many years ago when I was in college, my grandparents tragically died. Uh, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and my grandfather had a brain tumor, and they went out in the wintertime to pick up a prescription from Kroger's near their house, and they never returned. And it was discovered three days later that my grandfather, who was a retired truck driver, and had taken the wrong route home and got lost on a country road and drove out into a farmer's field out around his barn and got stuck out in the field and couldn't get out. Now, I was at the site where it happened, and he looked out his back window. He could see the farmhouse, but he never did because it was in the evening. And so my grandfather must have said to my grandmother, sit here until I get help. He wandered out of the car, up into the woods, and he just walked in a circle, lost in the woods, until he froze to death and died. And when my, that car ran out of gas, my grandmother never moved and froze to death and died. Now, how I'm in college. I'm asked to do their funeral. How, how do you have peace in the midst of that? That's a tragic, tragic incident in the life of any family. It's because of what you're anchored in. It's not that you, peace doesn't mean that, oh, I, you know, I, I just have this no feelings, like, you know, I'm not sad that they died or, or not crying. It, it's just that inner anchor within me that knows, you know what, in spite of all this, in spite of this horrible situation, I know that God's going to prevail in this, not only in my life, but in the lives of those who my grandparents touched. So there are three kinds of peace that we all need. We need spiritual peace, we all need emotional peace, and we all need relational peace. This is something that we all need. And so the first one is spiritual peace. So Romans 5, here's what Paul says. Therefore, now he's referring back, remember, therefore is what came before that. Well, Paul's been spending three, four chapters 
talking about whether you're rebellious in your heart against God or you're a respectable person where you try to do good things to make up for your bad things or you're a religious person, you're re resting on your religious rituals to be in a right relationship with God. And then chapter 4, he says, well, let me give you Abraham as an example. The only way we are righteous before God is through faith in Jesus Christ and having his righteousness credited to our account. And so he says, therefore, in light of that, since we have been justified through faith, you know, just as I've not, never sinned, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. Spiritual peace. It's the foundation of all of our lives. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 will say this, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so as long as I'm in hostility, I'm in enmity with God, there's this war going on between myself and God. There's no peace, right? Now, if I were to ask the average person who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, hey, you feel like you're at war with God? They have someone, well, no, I'm not at war with God. I don't have anything against God. You want to believe in God? Great. Uh, I don't particularly believe that, but, you know, whatever's good for you. They're not going to say, well, you know, I feel like I'm at war with God, but that's in essence what, what the Bible says, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they became allied with Satan, and the history of mankind is a record of a futile effort on our behalf to live happily and peacefully separated from our creator, and it just doesn't happen. People chase peace in all different ways. It might be through the next place that I live, the next, you know, I get married, I have a child, I got buy a car, I, I travel here, there, and so we're constantly chasing this elusive rainbow of peace only to find that we cannot grasp it. It just isn't there. And, and as long as circumstances are smooth in my life, uh, I, okay, I can be peaceful there. But the minute the bottom drops out, which has happened to a lot of you, all of a sudden my peace just drains out with it like a, a bucket with a hole in the bottom. And so Jesus is, this is not the peace that, that he promised us. He says the word peace, again, remember, it means to bind together. Um, that does not mean now that the battle is over you know, God kind of went back into heaven, and he's kind of tending to the things in heaven and the angels, and kind of left us here on earth to tend for ourselves, and that's not what it means at all. He bound us together. It's Emmanuel, Christ, God with us, and God in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of that spirit is this prevailing peace that you and I can experience on a day-in and day-out basis. So here's a couple inserts on your, your outline. Peace, peace is not found in the absence of problems. Peace is found in the presence of God. This is why worship is so important. This is why when the bottom is dropping out of your life, what is the one thing we most likely do? We dive deeper into worship with the Lord. We dive deeper into God's word. We want to hear from God. We, we are yearning for God's touch and presence. And because of that, you know, we, we can experience this prevailing peace. And the second thing is that the battle for peace always begins, he says, in the mind. In the mind is where the battle happens. So, for example, you, you are never saved until first 
there's been a battle in your mind. And the Bible says that we, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in life. And so here we were at war with God. We changed our mind. Now we come into peace with God. We bound together in oneness. God has invited us into the dance of the Trinity that we might have peace that is prevailing regardless of what our circumstances may bring us. Um, 70% of, of your friends and coworkers and family, um, they're in bed right now. <laughs> and so there, for many people, there's just no attraction to God. There's just no need or desire or even want to, to, to be engaged in the, you know, the life of uh, the church or other believers or prayer unless, you know, the bottom drops out, God's there for me. But other than that, it's just, there's just no sense of attraction. But for those who have been bound to Christ, authentically saved, there is this attraction that draws you to him because you know and I know that we need this this peace. We were once alienated. We were once indifferent towards God. We were once rebellious against him, but now we, we, want, we want intimacy. We want unity. We, we want God's presence in our lives, and that's exactly what Paul says that we receive. We receive peace. We're at peace with God, and here's why this is so, so important, because you'll never have peace of God until you've had peace with God. So instead of fighting God, as you used to, you're wanting to cooperate with him. And rather than shutting him out, you find yourself thinking about him and wanting to dialogue with him. Isaiah 48, 18 says, your peace would have been like a river. And so when peace is like a river, that's like a quality of life. Like there's this just prevailing peace. I'm anchored into Christ and things are happening around me and to me and uh, in the lives of loved ones that I'm love and care about, and yet there's this anchored, and you find peace like a river in your center of your soul when nothing else could do that for you. And so the Bible becomes a rescue mission for us because God takes the Spirit of God, takes the Word of God, and He moves us from blindness and rebellion and futility of searching for peace to actually giving us prevailing peace. And so that brings us to emotional peace. It's, it, emotional peace has to do with how you feel about yourself. Now, Jesus says the two greatest commandments was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love yourself as you're going to love others. I know a lot of Christians who have peace with God but do not possess the peace of God you are not at peace within yourself. You are at war with yourself. And it doesn't have to be that way. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. That word rule means to umpire. Now we all know what an, the, the role of an umpire, right? He's to keep the game moving forward, so if anybody gets out of line, they can blow the whistle, they can give you a penalty, they can, you know, um, kick you out of the game, you know, so they're, they're there to keep things moving forward in a very timely manner, and so um, God has given us this internal umpire that keeps peace within us, 
from becoming chaotic. And so here's two ways in which this happens. When we talk about emotional peace, one is forgiving yourself. You know, peace with God says that God has forgiven me all of my sin. But the question is, have you forgiven yourself? There are a lot of people who haven't, and they find it very difficult. Their past sins and transgressions, one or two mistakes are made oftentimes. They, they think that, you know, their wrongdoing was so big that it outstrips God's power to forgive or that God's, you know, or they picture God's forgiveness is too small to cover them. I have people say to me all the time, well, pastor, you don't understand what I've done. And, you know, God can't forgive me of that. And I've committed the unpardonable sin. And, and they go on and on about the fact that God somehow is always going to come up short when it is time to deal with their sin issues. And so um, let's just tackle the first one that, you know, my sin's so big it outstrips God's power to forgive. Well, let me ask you a question. What's the greatest penalty that the world can level against you for wrongdoing? The death penalty, right? That's, that's the ultimate I can do is you, you sin, you, you do something wrong, you, you kill someone, or you do something that is, that is worthy of the death penalty. That's the maximum sentence that the world can level against you. But here's the key. Jesus already took the death penalty for you. That means there is absolutely no sin debt you can bring to Jesus, and it's going to be marked insufficient funds. Remember, Jesus on the cross cried out, to tell us die, it is finished, it is paid in full. There is absolutely no sin that I could ever commit or sins in my life or transgression or rebellion that if I bring it to the feet of Jesus, that Jesus is going to make it Stamp it. I, I'm sorry. I just don't have enough grace here to cover your sin debt ever. So if God sees you that way, then start looking at yourself that way. Because as long as you keep beating yourself up over your sin and unwilling to forgive or unable to forgive yourself, you'll never be at peace emotionally. You're going to carry the hurt and the pain and the angst of life around with you, and it will always bleed over into your other relationships with other people. And as for those who think God's forgiveness is too small, they're usually making the error of thinking that God's forgiveness is like human forgiveness, because we do have difficulty forgiving, don't we? When we're called upon, somebody's hurt us, and we're called upon to forgive them, it is hard for us. We would think, well, I'll forgive you if, or I'll forgive you when, you know, when you come crawling back and you give me an apology, and, and if you do this, then I, I will think about, you know, leveraging forgiveness your way. So because of our human nature and frailty when it comes to forgiving others who have hurt us, Sometimes we, we transpose that onto God, like, well, maybe God has some problems, you know, like we're forgiving me because of the stuff that I've done, the secrets that I'm holding, the things that I'm doing behind closed doors that no one else sees but him. All through history, the size of people's sin has never been an issue with God to those who humble themselves before him and admit their failures, and ask for forgiveness. And God says, I will do that. 
I'm just challenging you this morning. Um, where is it that you are unwilling or unable, you think, to forgive yourself? Here's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all, not part, not some, all of our unrighteousness. Here's the second thing. Being at peace with who God made you to be. Sometimes we're at war inside because we just don't like what God, how God made us. We have the if only mentality. If only I looked different. If only I was taller. If only I was shorter. If only I had better talents. If only I had this and if only I had that. And then so we, we are constantly battling ourselves emotionally because we just really don't like how God made us. I mean, I remember as a sixth grader, the very first time I tried out for basketball, I was a really good shot at that time, and I was banging them down all over the place, but I did not make the team because the coach basically said, you're too short. So it's like, oh, you know, like I didn't even believe in God then, but, you know, I'd tell God about it, right? Lord, why didn't you make me taller? Why couldn't I be taller? And, and so, you know, we, we can work ourselves up over this whole ability and inability, and we refuse, you know, to work with the raw materials that God has given to us. And therefore, if I'm constantly at odds with God on how He made me, how He designed me, how He created me, then I will never find peace emotionally. I'll never find fulfillment. I'll never find um, security in my life. I'll always be unhappy. This is why some people take plastic surgery to the nth degree. Because they do not like how they look, and therefore, it's not just a cosmetic thing. It's like you can't even recognize them anymore because no matter what they see, there's, there's emotional turmoil inside about who they feel they are. You can have peace with God by being reconciled in relationship, but have this restless feeling and wage this secret war with God over the way that he made you. Maybe you wanted to be different physically. Maybe you wanted to be different um, emotionally or your personalities. Like, oh, I'm, an in, I'm so such an introvert. Why can't I be like my, my sister who's like the life of the party? She's the sanguine and just like knows everybody. And I, I just like I sit in the corner and wait for people to approach me. Or why can't I be like the cleric, you know, who's the leader? And I just get out there and charge, you know, into the into the whatever it is that's put in front of me, why can't I be more like that? And so there's that, that war and sometimes even our abilities. Why didn't God give me certain abilities that he gave to others? And as long as we live our lives constantly comparing ourselves with others, we will never be at peace with ourselves internally. So what does God do? He commissions the Holy Spirit to get us to see that, listen, like a snowflake, you are wonderfully and fearfully made in the image of God. And everything God gave you, your physical stature, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the natural abilities you came into the world with, God, God is the one who created all of that. He's the one who set that in your DNA. Celebrate it. Listen, I tell married couples, all, couples get married all the time. Look, if you guys were identical and both the same, somebody's not needed. In this relationship, right? So God has made us all unique and different, and he calls it the body of Christ. And he says, how can the hand say to the foot that I don't need you, or the head say to the heart, I don't need you? God has uniquely gifted and made us up and put us together as the body of Christ 
because God knew exactly what he was, he was doing. I don't want to walk around the rest of my life like I did for many years, especially in junior high school. And junior high school is tough anyways on kids. But when you're short and you're scrawny and, you know, it's just like, like I walked around this Eeyore complex, like, oh, woe is me. So, so this is what God does through his Holy Spirit. He, he won't stop his covert peace-producing operation within us. The psalmist, again, says we're not an accident. We're not a mistake. We're not a mutation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So stop arguing with God about how he made you and start agreeing with the Holy Spirit as he comes to take place in your life and honestly say, you know what? I've been wonderfully made. I am different from any other person. God has made me unique, but he's made me just the way he wants me. Then relational peace. If I'm not at peace with God, I'll not be at peace relationally with many people. If I'm not at peace within myself, I'm really going to struggle relationally with other people. Because what's going on in here spills out over here. So God says, this, this is where we need peace, right? We need God's prevailing peace in the area of our relationship with our Father, in the area of forgiving ourselves, embracing who God created us to be rather than trying to be somebody you're not. Be who God made you to be, and out of that love for self, now that love pours over into the hearts and the lives of those around me. Relational peace. So let me tell you two things about relational peace. Number one, it's not avoiding a problem, okay? When I talk about relational peace, people are like, well, you know, I just, that means I have to avoid all my problems. Peace is not running from a problem. It's not ignoring an issue. It's not pretending that something isn't there. It's not like sticking your head in the sand. A lot of people simply avoid issues rather than facing them. So let's not just talk about them. Don't make waves, you know. I, I, I can't do this. Unresolved conflict, if you just like stick your head in the sand, I don't want to deal, let's sweep it under the carpet. Some of you came from families like that. My family, we rarely dealt with issues, right? So we just shoved it under the carpet. But here's what happened. Unresolved conflict is like having termites in your house. It's just a matter of time before your house collapses, right? So it, it's, peace does not mean I don't deal with issues and problems doesn't mean I just ignore and run from it. This is what most people do, right? We run. We don't want to deal with the issues. We don't deal with the problems. Sometimes people run from churches because they, they're mad at somebody. They have an issue with somebody. They don't want to sit down and deal with it and have conflict resolution. They just run. Just, I'm just going to go. Peacemaking also is not appeasing another person for the sake of peace. In other words, if you always have to give in, to somebody else, you know, have it your way, uh, I'm not going to fight you on this, and you get manipulated and dominated by that person. This can happen in marriage, it can happen in friendships, it can happen with coworkers. It's like you're always giving in to keep peace in the family. So God doesn't expect you to be a doormat. Jesus never backed off of a legitimate issue he had to deal with. He dealt with it swiftly, and when people say, because you're a Christian, you got to give in to what I say, that's called manipulation. 
And if you're always giving in to keep peace in the family, that's called codependency. And whether you are manipulative or you are codependent, they both end the same way, resentment. If you're constantly giving in, if you're constantly the doormat, it's just a matter of time before you resent the person who's put you in that position to keep peace in the family or to keep peace in the relationship. And so we need to be reconciled with others in our lives if we're going to understand God's peace because this is what God did for us. He bound us to himself. He reconciled a relationship that was estranged, that was separated, and he brought it together and bound it in oneness. So how do we do that? How do we become a peacemaker? Here's what Romans chapter 12 and verse... Well, before I get to that, let me, let me give you, I know it's on your outline, some uh, benefits of being a peacemaker. Number one, there's a psychological benefit. All right? If, you, if, you're, if, if your heart is steeped in anger and resentment and bitterness, we've talked about this a lot, so I'm just going to touch on these briefly. It's like, it's like poison, right? It poisons your entire emotional system. And so um, it keeps your pain alive instead of letting you deal with it and move beyond it. Bitterness sentences you to relive that same hurt over and over and over and over and over and over again. As a moment how much you try to suppress it, how much you push it down, eventually someone or something's going to happen that's going to remind you of it, and boom, it's, and it might not even be anybody who's even related to what the, the initial hurt was. So psychologically, it's, it keeps you in you know, a clamp around your mind. Remember, the mind is the key to the battlefield here. It all Peace begins in the mind, and so psychologically, if you're unwilling to give up the anger, bitterness, and resentment, and unforgiveness, it has a hold on you. And the way you think affects the way you feel, and the way you feel affects your actions. It also is a physical reason why forgiveness makes so much sense. In the long run, unforgiveness destroys you. The bitterness and the bottled up anger doesn't just mess with your mind, it actually threatens your life. I give you two case studies. One was reported by the New York Times. Researchers gathered a wealth of data. It says that the chronic anger is so damaging to the body that it ranks up there with excessive cigarette smoking, obesity, and a high-fat diet as a powerful risk for early death. The University of Michigan did an extensive study among women, and they took 18 women, and they took those in the, part of the group who were able to you know, release their anger, unforgiveness, and of those who were not, they tracked them for 20 years to see what results were in these two different factors, and they found that those who continued to suppress their anger were three times more likely to have died at the end of those 20 years. In other words, forgiveness neutralizes the life-threatening cause of anger um, that can really shorten our lives if we're not careful. Number three, there is a relational reason why forgiveness makes sense. Jesus said... If you're offering up something, remember your, your brother some, has something against you. He says, leave your offering, go be reconciled, and then come and offer your, your gift. Why does God want us to settle our issues quickly? Because when you let it linger on, it just becomes harder. 
So here's what, here's what we think. Well, it's been years now. Um, I've let go of that. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not affecting me. That's not what God's word bears out over and over again. It is affecting you. You're just not acknowledging it. You're just not willing to face up to it. And there's also a kingdom benefit here. And there's nothing particularly commendable about loving those who already care about us, Jesus said. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? But what about the people who haven't loved you? Someone has said, to return evil for good is the devil's way. To return good for good is man's way. To return good for evil, that's God's way. And so forgiving, forgiveness, is, is not natural to us. It's just not. We struggle with it. We fight with it. Um, our mind has a thousand reasons as to why I don't want to do this. But yet Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 and 18, Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Everyone. Now, let me just say this caveat, is that some people are not going to accept your steps towards them in reconciling a relationship. That's not your responsibility, their response. Our responsibility is to do what God has called us to do, to be peacemakers. So let's just use the word peace as an acrostic and, and kind of flesh this out. P is for prayer, right? But I want you to pray a specific prayer. I want you to ask God to give you the capacity to love this person who has so deeply hurt you. This is so important. Ask God to give you the capacity to love this person who has so deeply hurt you. Well, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like loving this person. I don't want to forgive them. Well, you've got to admit that, right? You've got to ask God for that capacity that you just don't have at this moment in time in your life. Jesus said that we are to love our enemies, to pray for them, to do good towards them. Here's what I've discovered in life. If you're praying for somebody... It's hard to harbor bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness over time. You're, because the Holy Spirit is doing something within you. He's, he's, he's moving in your heart. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and all these things that we need in order to process this event in our lives and to actually pray for this person because we really have a desire to unload the unforgiveness. E means to empathize. In other words, you want to focus on the person, not your pain. Well, our tendency is, our human tendency is what? We've been hurt, we focus on what? We focus on ourselves. Well, they've hurt me, they mistreated me, they... Um, and you, you're focused on yourself, which is a natural response. But here, here's the thing, here's the mental part. You've got to make a mental shift from focusing on you to focusing upon the person, to empathize. Because here's what I know about people who hurt people are usually hurting people. And there's a lot of hurt going on inside of them. And as a result, they have no prevailing peace. They lash out. They, there's all kinds of stuff that's unresolved in their own life. 
And so Jesus always kind of stepped into the shoes of somebody else and said, let me, let me help you with this. Let me help you move forward. A is to act. And what I mean by that is act means cease the war on words and look for ways to bless. Now, we live in a society now as cancel culture or people get attacked on social media, and I mean viciously attacked. It's a war with words, and we are to resist that temptation to traffic rumors and gossip and unfair criticism about somebody who has hurt us. And I've seen, I, I've watched more than one relationship in my own neighborhood. We have our own Facebook page, our neighborhood, and neighbors get into it about usually about something about their kids, and then the war on words start, and then it's, you know, all hell breaks loose. And now they're, in the, you know, I don't, you know, they defriend each other and they're, they're mad at each other and then they take it out in the neighborhood and, and it just gets really ugly. And so God says, listen, don't war with people with your words. We are to bless them. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we are to build each other up. We are to, we are to breathe life into people with our words, not to tear them down. It's easy to do when somebody has hurt you and you want to slander them. You want other people to feel as bad about them as you do. That doesn't bring healing. Number four, or a C, is confess. Look for your contribution in the situation. It might be that you, you are the recipient of the hurt, but it might be that you had part in how it got there. Like, for example, I know people who've been divorced, and yet they never healed from that first marriage, so they just took all that emotional baggage into the second marriage and wondered why that one didn't last, and then they took all that emotional baggage into the next relationship, and all that emotional baggage just kept, it's the cycle, right? So there's no peace within, and therefore there's no peace horizontally, because we are not good enough to compartmentalize our lives in such a degree that I can have all the hurt and pain over here towards this person, but I'll never carry it over into this relationship. Nobody's that good. And then E, emulate, which means to yield yourself to the Spirit's influence. You, you and I need the Holy Spirit. We're not good enough to lay our weapons down. And so oftentimes what people do is they just let it go, and we're going to dodge one another. We're going to avoid one another. You see somebody in the store, and it's like, oh, I don't want to talk to them. Shh, down the next aisle. And this is not what God's called us to. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, God has reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So I end with this. What, who do you, who do you need to reconcile with? It might be a family member. It may be a coworker. It might be a friend, um, a parent. Some of you have held on to hurt so long, and it's time to give, it, to give in and give it up. Hear me well. Over time you will begin to resemble those whom you resent. Let that sink in. You will begin to resemble those whom you resent if you don't take care of it. You may have resented a parent for a long, long time, 
and then you got married, and there's some of the same characteristics in your spouse as that parent, and it just absolutely frustrates the daylights out of you. Who do you need to forgive? Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule, umpire your heart. And so have you made peace with God? I didn't say a truce. A truce is, God, you do your thing over here, I'll do my thing over here, and when I need you, I'll call you. That's a truce. Have you made peace with God? And until we have peace with God, we will never have peace within ourselves, and until we have peace within ourselves, we can't really have peace and deliver that peace at a level that God wants to in our relationships with others as long as we're hanging on to our stuff. So we're about to enter into 2022. My question for you is, who do you need to write a letter to? Who do you need to call? Who do you need to sit down with to resolve to the best of your ability that which you are harboring in unforgiveness? Why not start the new year on a brand new slate so that the prevailing peace of Christ flows in you and through you into the hearts and lives of others. Let's pray. Father, I'm certain that um, this morning faces have appeared in our minds and names and maybe for some here this morning they've just kind of relived the hurt, the abuse, whatever the pain that was brought into their lives. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that, humanly speaking, we are frail. We find it very difficult. We acknowledge this to you. We just find it very difficult to, to forgive and, and to accept healing because we just so badly want them paid back for what they've done to us. And God, we know that um, Lord, justice is in your hands judge every person for what they have done or not done. And God, we just release these individuals over to you. But God, we commit ourselves, though, to pray for them. Maybe to pray for their salvation. Maybe to pray that this relationship would be healed and restored. And if it's not possible for it to be restored, that at least, Father, we would go through this process of releasing ourselves of, of the hurt and the pain and God to experience healing and freedom deep within us beneath the surface so that we're not carrying this into our relationships with other people, that we're not guarded, we're not to the point that we just can't even function anymore. We have no trust, we have no ability to become intimate because of all of this hurt and pain. So I pray healing over the body of Christ this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. May he touch, illumine, lighten, enlighten us where that, that spot is within us that needs to be dealt with. Father, I pray that you will um, just bring restoration of our hearts and our lives as we enter into a new year. We don't know what this year is going to hold, but we, we know that you are in control of all things. We want our relationships to be the best they possibly could be. We want our church to be united 
under the blood of Jesus and the power of the gospel as we seek to take the gospel into our community and our workplaces and where we go to school and our neighborhoods. Father, um, set us free. I pray um, where past hurt and pain is keeping us bound and chained to the past. May you break those chains in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close our time in song.